Hey everybody, welcome to Digging Deeper, a podcast of the Glendale Road Church of Christ. I'm Stephen Hunter, the minister of the Glendale Road Church of Christ, and I welcome you. We've been talking about over the past few weeks where things began to change in church history. So today, what I want to point out is, you may remember a few weeks ago that it was a fellow by the name of Ignatius of Antioch in the second century who created the threefold form of authority in the local church where you had the bishop, the elders, and the deacons. Now, a few weeks ago when we explored that topic, we saw that in the New Testament there were only, uh, in the local church, there were elders and deacons. Of course, at that time there were also apostles and prophets and so forth. But primarily in the local church there were elders and deacons, uh, according to Philippians 1 verse 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3. So, uh, there are plenty of other verses, but if you want to go back to that a couple of weeks and look at the change in church leadership. But today, uh, what we're going to look at and study is going to be more historical than scriptural, per se. We're going to talk about how there came to be a pope. So, as Christianity grew, and you have the threefold order of bishop, elders, and deacons in the local church... There, now remember, a bishop was one chosen by his fellow elders to preside over the entire congregation. Well, bishops begin to uh, uh, arise in cities, and they would serve between the bishops and elders of congregations that might have been more on the outskirts. And among some of the big city bishops were men named Metropolitans, who were over capital cities and provinces. So as the Metropolitans arose, those churches that may have had more of an apostolic tie, they were given higher esteem because they were believed to bear the most pure form of apostolic tradition. This comes into play especially with the Roman church, because both Peter and Paul had spent time among the Roman church, and so the Roman church was viewed as having uh, the most pure form of apostolic tradition, since two very highly esteemed apostles had been there. Now, the bishops of these capital cities and provinces began receiving the honorary title of patriarch. And by the time we get to the Council of Nicaea in AD 325, this form of government is assumed to have been in operation. So if you were looking at a map, Damascus had a bishop, Beersheba had a bishop, but Jerusalem would have had a patriarch. The most prominent of congregations, as I mentioned, to hold the purest form of the apostolic tradition and teaching were Rome. Behind Rome, there was Antioch and Alexandria. Later added to that most prominent list of patriarchs were Constantinople and Jerusalem. Now, in AD 330, Constantine moved the head of his rule from Rome to modern-day Istanbul, Turkey. But he named the city after himself, Constantinople. And the world began to recognize it as the head of the Roman rule, and it was often referred to as the New Rome. However, the church in Old Rome didn't recognize the political relocation as one of a church relocation of authority as well. So you have one church believing that they're still holding the prominence, 
and the relocated church believe that because it followed the emperor, it had the providence or the prominence. Excuse me. So old Rome was gradually, gradually replacing the Greek language with Latin. So in Rome, the patriarch began to be called Papa or Pope after the Latin. And in Latin, he would later be referred to as Sumus Pontifex Vicarius Christi. Or in English, the Supreme Pontiff, the Vicar of Christ. So when you get to this period, uh, the 4th century, you have patriarchs in Rome, Constantinople, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexandria. Now there was a fellow that lived in the, uh, the second century, later 2nd century, by the name of Irenaeus, and he wrote a work called Against Heresies in AD 180, and he pointed out the succession of bishops for the purpose of establishing sound doctrine in the church, because there was a group called the Gnostics. They didn't have such a historical claim of succession. He also pointed out that Peter and Paul established the church and handed over the oversight of it. So it wasn't Peter only who founded the church, as is often said. So let me, let me read from Against Heresies, book 3, chapter 3, verse 3. He writes, The blessed apostles, Peter and Paul, then having founded and built up the church, committed into the hands of Linus the office of the episcopate, now remember, episcopate, episcopalian, uh, it means bishop or oversight. Of this Linus, Paul makes mention in the epistles to Timothy. To succeed him, Anacletus, and after him in third place from the apostles, Clement was allotted the bishopric. To this Clement, there succeeded Evaristus. Alexander followed Evaristus, then sixth from the apostles, Sixtus was appointed. After him... Telophorus, who was gloriously martyred, and Hegenus, after him, Pius, then after him, Anicetus, Soror, having succeeded Anicetus, Eleutherius does now, in the twelfth place from the apostles, hold the inheritance of the episcopate. In this order, and by this succession, the ecclesiastical tradition from the apostles and the preaching of the truth have come down to us. And this is the most abundant proof that there is one and the same vivifying faith, which had been preserved in the church from the apostles until now and handed down in truth. Now that's the full quote. Now you're probably thinking, if he wrote that in A.D. 180, that's an awful lot of different bishops to have gone through. But you got to keep in mind that in the first and second centuries, uh, specifically in Rome, there had been persecutions here or there against Christians. So a lot of the time, the leaders of Christianity were targeted, and as being leaders, they were often martyred. Now, Peter and Paul were also at Rome for their execution, and since many of the remaining Christians had communed with these guys, the universal church assumed that a more pure apostolic tradition resided with the Roman church. So this is how the Roman church rose to prominence before the church of the entire world. The Eastern church called this bishop Pope, 
and in any writing where an Eastern Orthodox clergyman speaks of the Western bishop, they will often refer to them or to him as Pope. However, the Bishop of Rome wasn't called Pope until A.D. 400, but even then he was regarded head of the Church Universal, but he shared those responsibilities with the other patriarchs. So he was merely seen, and this is a phrase that was often used, he was merely seen as first among equals. So there's been an argument for Peter having been the first pope of the church at Rome. I don't believe that for a second because when Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, uh, he, did not, he did not mention Peter having been there. And Paul also wrote in his letter to the Romans that he didn't wish to desire to build upon another's foundation, which he would have done if he had gone and Peter had already been there. So let's look at a few, a few uh, arguments for Peter as the first pope, and here's how I respond to them. Jesus named Peter the head of the church in Matthew 16, 18. In that verse it says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But now, that's the claim, but the history is that this passage was first used as a papal text in the middle of the 3rd century. So up until that time, it had not been interpreted that way. Now they will say, well, Jesus told Peter to shepherd his flock in John 21, 15 through 17. But when Peter wrote his his uh, first letter to Galatia, of, uh, excuse me, to Asia, he encouraged the elders to pastor the flock among them. Some say, well, he was prominent because uh, Peter was the spokesman on the day of Pentecost, and he was. But remember that he was also rebuked by the Apostle Paul. Now, if you look at the papacy as it is today, there are certain assumptions that would have to go with that. So popes today are celibate, so Peter must have been, right? Well, we read in Matthew 8.14 and Mark 1.30 that Peter was married because his mother-in-law is mentioned. Well, some might say Peter must have had supreme jurisdiction and honor. Well, why didn't Paul address him in the Roman letter? If you judge by today, Peter must have been infallible, but Peter was often rebuked by Jesus. So, the Council of Elvira in the 4th century was the point at which celibacy was imposed on the clergy, just if you were curious as, as to when that arose. The doctrine of papal infallibility wasn't established until 1870 when Pope Pius IX declared the Immaculate Conception of Mary. So here are a few other points. Uh, Acts 15, Peter helped introduce the problem at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 as to whether or not a person should be circumcised before becoming a Christian. But in Acts 15... James was the one who rendered the decision. In verses 19 and 20, James said, Therefore it is my judgment. And he attributed his authority to the Holy Spirit in verse 28. So if Peter was Pope, he would have had to have had the final word, correct? Well, when James and John asked for the left and the right side of Christ for their honor, 
he told them that it wasn't his to give. If Peter had been given preeminence, as suggested by how some use Matthew 16, 18, and 19, why would they have asked for it, and why wouldn't Christ have rebuked them for trying to usurp Peter's position? Here's something else. When Peter entered the house of Cornelius, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshipped him, but Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man, in Acts 10, verses 25 and 26. Whereas in these days the Pope receives bows, kisses to his ring, and other worshipful gestures. When Ignatius addressed the church at Rome, he never mentioned a bishop. When Clement and Hermas wrote to Rome, they recorded that the Roman church had a plurality of elders at the beginning of the second century. But by the time of the patriarchs, there had been a peaceful union within the church, whereby doctrinal matters were settled by councils, akin to that in Acts 15. These patriarchs were seen as equal bishops over the respective heads of their territories. When the government of church changed and heads of the areas were named patriarchs, there were originally three, Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. As the church grew, so did the appetites of the patriarchs for power. Before long, the bishops of Jerusalem and Constantinople were named patriarchs. The council at Nicaea gave greater honor to Rome and Constantinople, but not greater authority. By the council of Chalcedon in AD 451, equal privileges were given to Constantinople as to Rome. And then you get to AD 595, the patriarch of Constantinople, whose name was John the Faster, he assumed the title Ecumenical Patriarch, which simply means ecumenical over the whole world, the church over the whole world. Well, Gregory the Great, or Pope Gregory I, wrote to the emperor begging him not to acknowledge John the Faster's assumed title. But as John assumed it, the emperor Maurice acknowledged it. A few years later, the emperor Maurice was slain by a usurper, whose name was Phocas, P-H-O-C-A-S. Pope Gregory sent letters of praise to the new emperor. However, in the year 606, Phocas transferred the title of universal bishop to Boniface III, the bishop of Rome, which thus established the modern-day papacy as we know it, and the Catholic Church at Rome, the Roman Catholic Church. Now, as Pope, Boniface III became the head of the entire church with the backing of the emperor, and the succession till today is what remains. So you might be saying, if they can record their history that far back, surely they must be the true church. Well, there's there's a problem with that argument. Um Here's the problem. It places authority within a lineage of men. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus said that the seed of the kingdom was the word of God. Now, if I want to grow a Florida watermelon in Kentucky, I don't have to go all the way to Florida, find a watermelon, and stretch that vine through all the states to get here. All I have to do is take one of the seeds or some of the seeds of that Florida watermelon and bring it up here to Kentucky and put it in good soil. When I do that, I've got a Florida watermelon in Kentucky. When we take the seed of the kingdom, which is the word of God, and we plant that, 
we get Christians, we get a church. That's where the power is. Not in a succession of men, but in the Word of God. I hope this has been informative to you. Please feel free to share it, subscribe, rate us, and Lord willing, we'll see you again soon.